Hey, it's good to be with you guys. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here this morning. If you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are white and blue paperback Bibles uh, back in the back there. You can uh, grab one of those um, or just look on your phone or look on the Bible, the neighbor sitting next to you. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of those back there home. It's our gift to you this morning. Well, this morning uh, we are looking at the fourth and final uh, servant song in Isaiah. During the season of Advent, we have been looking at these these servant songs found in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And these servant songs are, are four songs or poems found in the latter half of the book of Isaiah, which foretell the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. They tell us what he's going to be like. They tell us about his character, his gentleness, his wisdom. They tell us about the, the kind of suffering he's going to face and about his ultimate vindication and victory over the enemies of God's people. And this song, found in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, is a sort of full portrait. Uh, we've seen some outlines, we've seen some, some pen and ink sketches up to this point, with each and every song becoming a little more detailed, a little more detailed. And, and here's the, the sort of finale. This is Isaiah's finished portrait of the servant. Uh, Isaiah's portrait of the servant is, is done here. And this is who Israel is waiting for, for seven, eight hundred years, since there's seven to eight hundred years between the ministry of Isaiah and the coming of the Christ. So this is who Israel was waiting for. This is who came on Christmas morning, and this is who we're waiting for to come back to make all things new. And so we're going to dig into Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And before we read, it might kind of help to know um, who is speaking here and about whom they are speaking. Uh, there are a lot of personal pronouns being used here and never an explicit naming of who these personal pronouns belong to. So typically whenever you see words like I or my, uh, that is God speaking, Yahweh, the Lord. Whenever you see pronouns like I or, yeah, or I or my, and then whenever you see pronouns like we or our, that's typically talking, that's uh, speaking about God's people, Israel. And whenever you see pronouns like him or his or he, that's talking about the servant, Jesus, who will come. There are exceptions in the song, but that's basically how the text works. So keep that in mind as we read this text and work through it for the next 30 minutes or so. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, and hopefully that helps you get your bearings as we read. This is the inspired word of our God, so let's listen with reverence and with joy to Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred 
beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we know that we tread holy ground as we read this text. Would you give us eyes to see now, to behold, as you tell us to do, to behold your servant here this morning, to look to him, to trust in him, not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in him. Would you help us, Lord, for we are weak and we are weary and we need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, you've probably seen your fair share of nativity scenes this time of year. You might have one in your own house. Uh, Or maybe your, your parents, like mine do, 
uh, have several up in different parts of the home. I was at my parents' house this last week, and I saw three or four different nativity scenes in the living room and kitchen alone. Uh, there was the one that my dad got my mom when we were in Haiti. Um, that one's kind of interesting and, and, and cool. And um, Then there was the one that my grandmother made for us kids when, when we were young, us grandkids when we were young. It's like a stuffed nativity set safe for kids to play with without ruining anything. And then there was one made out of wood and, and twine and other similar materials. I've also seen advertisements around the city for live nativity scenes, which I assume are like, you know, real people playing Mary and Joseph, and hopefully they have like real animals and stuff. That sounds interesting. And what these probably all have in common, these nativity scenes, is uh, some sort of sentimental kind of awe factor. You know, it's little baby Jesus, and it's cute and warm, and it warms the cockles of your heart. And uh, a while back, I came across some photos of the nativity that folks in the Christians in the Byzantine tradition made earlier in church history. And uh, it had some things in common with these nativity scenes we see commonly today. There were animals in the scenes, and there was, of course, Mary there, and, and Joseph was there, and, of course, little baby Jesus. But one part was interesting. When you look at the Christ child, something is different. Instead of being placed in a manger, he's depicted as laying in a stone coffin, and instead of being wrapped in swaddling cloths, he's, he's wrapped in a traditional burial shroud. And instead of the scene taking place in a stable, a barn-like structure, it's depicted as taking place in a, in a carved-out cave, not unlike his tomb. And the message that the artists were communicating is simple, that this Christ child came to die. This Christ child has come in order to be crucified and to die on behalf of his people. The four gospels communicate the same message. They use uh, interesting literary devices and each and every scene and each and every passage in the gospels, including the nativity narratives that, that, that show us they're always anticipating, always pointing forward, always moving forward to the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the entire climax of the narratives. That is the reason for Christ's first advent, his first coming. He came that he might die on behalf of his people. That is what we're remembering during Advent and celebrating during Christmas. Christ has come to save us, and he saves us through his death. And our text this morning reveals the very same purpose and reason for Christ's advent, for his coming. Mild he lays his glory by, born that men may no, may no more die. This text in Isaiah bears witness to the reality that the promised servant, the promised king, the promised savior is coming so that he might suffer as a substitute for his people. And that's the big idea that we're going to explore Today, as we walk through this text, looking first at the surprising servant, second at the suffering servant, third at the substitutionary servant, and fourth at the satisfied servant, the surprising servant, the suffering servant, the substitutionary servant, and the satisfied servant. First, we see the surprising servant in verses 52, 13 through 53, 3. The, the servant is surprising. 
You know, it's, it's, it's weird. He isn't what you would expect from a savior king. It's counterintuitive to us in, in our natural way of thinking. We, we even find the question in verse 1 of chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? You know, it seems implausible that this servant is the one whom God would send. It seems unbelievable that this suffering servant is the savior king that God has long promised. It's surprising for one, simply because of his appearance. Verse 2 says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. By, by looks and appearance, he's nothing special. The prophet says he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, meaning he's kind of like a, 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 a weed growing up in the sidewalk when you're on a stroll through your neighborhood. You, you don't even notice it. It's not worth noticing, is it? And not only that, but by all indications, he's, he's actually a failure in his mission to save God's people. He doesn't look like a success as a, as a savior to save God's people from the grips of the shadow of death. Verse 14 of chapter 52 says, as many were astonished at you. It says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The servant who will come, he's going to enter into an intense suffering. He's going to be beaten and bloodied to the point where you wouldn't even recognize him. If you knew him, you you wouldn't even be able to tell that he's a human being. He'll be so brutalized and, and bloodied and bruised. And God says, here's your salvation. There's no way that this could be considered a success. There's no way this could be our salvation, right? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Hardly the stuff of a savior king. He didn't come from one of the respectable families. He didn't look like a king. He didn't look respectable. He doesn't have what it takes. He isn't made of the right stuff. He's no real savior king appointed by God to save his people. No one would face such a failure if they were truly the savior king so long to promise. Who's believed what he has heard from us? Who could believe that this is our salvation? Israel didn't want an unimpressive, ordinary-looking failure of a Messiah. They They wanted Dwayne the Rock Johnson, okay? They wanted Captain America, and, and, and we still struggle with the same mindset. We, I, we see this all the time. A while back, I saw someone share a picture on my social media feed that reveals that we very much need to grapple with the meaning of this text today. And, and they didn't share it ironically, uh, I should say. It was a picture of Jesus. And Jesus is like super buff, like Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the day kind of buff, like super buff. And he's on the cross, but he's like doing a, a chest fly, like a, you know, and, and he's breaking the cross in half. And he's, he's, instead of hanging on it for the sins of his people, Jesus is breaking the cross and, and he's strong and capable. He's Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Maybe you wouldn't post such a stupid photo on your social media stream, but this problem isn't foreign to us. We too struggle with thinking with looking for loud and impressive displays to convince us of God's saving power. We, we love powerful experiences and epic church gatherings and rocking bands and fog machines and the like. We, we love 
using the, the same power dynamics of the world to use partisan politics to advance what, what we think is advancing the kingdom of God. But if there's one thing we should gather from these servant songs over the last several weeks, it's that spectacles and big events and power plays and power dynamics are not the ways of this servant king. Those are the ways of the world. Our temptation is to be distracted by them, to, to pass the weed growing up in the sidewalk and search for something more significant. To, to pass the small babe of of Bethlehem, the child growing up in obscurity, the man hanging on a cross, and look for something deeper, something that will actually give us what we need. And that's as if in the midst of all that noise, God says in a whisper, this is your salvation. Who has believed what he has heard from us? How can this be? Now listen on. Next we see the suffering servant. And I want you to notice some of the words here describing what happens to the servant in these verses. In verse 4, we see that the servant is stricken. He's he's struck. He suffers a a strike from God. The word literally means to to take a blow. Next, we see he's smitten by God. You know, to smite someone or something means something similar to what it means to strike something. But to smite usually means often to, to deal a deathly blow. This is, this is going to, to cause the death of the thing smitten. See, next, the servant is afflicted. To be afflicted means to experience a particularly humiliating form of suffering. The, the servant, he doesn't suffer with dignity, okay? He, he's brought low. He's made the lowest of the low. In the next verse, we see some more. We see that he's pierced. He's pierced. Of course, we know on this side of the coming of Jesus, specifics concerning how this took place. We know that nails were driven through his hands and his feet. We know that a crown of thorns was pressed into his skull. We know that that as he was hanging on the cross, dying, dead, a spear was thrust through his side to ensure that he was truly dead. The following sentences describe the servant as being crushed, giving us the picture of perhaps a piece of pottery being broken to pieces by a hammer, being utterly destroyed by whatever has struck it. Furthermore, the the servant faces chastisement, literally meaning that the servant faces punishment. And all of this, this striking and smiting and piercing and crushing is all taking place as a punishment. Moreover, the servant receives wounds. He's, he's wounded. He's scourged, bruised, bloodied, broken. And we can go on, but the picture we're receiving as we read these descriptions of what takes place with God's chosen servant is that he suffers pain and torture, and ultimately his pain and torture leads to death. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Cut off from the land of the living. His grave was with the wicked, and and a rich man, a wealthy man actually, named Joseph of Arimathea, we see in the Gospels, 
uh, buried Christ in the tomb that he had purchased. He dies. He's, he's buried. He becomes a corpse in a tomb. And his death was, was one of the most painful and humiliating ways that a person could die. Is it any wonder why, why verse 3 would call him a man of sorrows and acquainted, literally knowing he is known by grief? No one has experienced sorrow like him and grief like he does. No one knew grief quite like him. But Christian, I want you to ultimately understand what it is that gave him such sorrow What made him grieve so severely? It was not simply physical torture and pain and death he would experience. You know, when we read in Luke's gospel narrative that that Jesus, prior to his crucifixion, sweat blood and was afflicted in his soul, we need to know what was causing that. It wasn't just the fact that he was about to be scourged and physically beaten and crucified and suffer death. You know, many others have faced similar physical suffering without such sorrow and without such grief. Now, ultimately, what caused him such sorrow and grief is that in his suffering, he was taking on the wrath of God in our place. He was feeling in his soul the weight of our guilt and the wrath of God in his soul. See this in verse 4, we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. By God. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. His suffering is not random. It's also not deserved, mind you. Since as verse 9 says, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was a perfectly just man. He was righteous. He's the only righteous man. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. He alone is the spotless lamb of God. And so you see his suffering is not random. It's not deserved. Instead, it is what we deserve. And therefore, he suffers as the substitutionary servant. The servant suffers as our substitute. And this is the good news at the heart of the gospel Jesus substituted himself on the cross for us. On the cross, he took the blame. On the cross, he took the just deserts of our sin. On the cross, he was our substitute. And this is explicitly spelled out in verses 5 to 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has laid the sin of guilty people, you and me, on the innocent Christ on the cross. The word theologians use for this is the word imputation. It means to charge something to someone's account. As you know, just from common experience, when a wrong has been done, it, it must be paid for. It must be paid for. Say on your way home from church today, God forbid you get in a, a minor car accident. No one's hurt, but some damage to the car. Someone's going to have to answer for that accident. The damage and cost needs to be paid for. 
So it is with the problem of sin. God can't just turn a blind eye to sin. He would not be just if he did so. He can't just sweep it under the rug and wink at it. The damage and cost must be paid. Justice must be satisfied. And out of his immeasurable love for us, sinners and transgressors, though we are, though we alone are at fault, he bears no fault. Though we alone are at fault, the son of God himself steps into human history to pay the cost, to repair the damage, to satisfy justice. Our sin is imputed to him. It's laid upon him. And in exchange, his perfection, his righteousness, his goodness is imputed to us. That's why Isaiah says in verse 11 that the servant will make many to be accounted righteous. This is that idea of imputation again. But instead of our guilt being imputed to the servant, he's saying that the servant's righteousness is imputed to the many who trust in him. That's you and that's me. So you see, his suffering, again, it's not deserved and it's, it's not meaningless. It's not random. It has a, a clear, indefinite purpose. He is suffering for you. It's for the man who struggles with an addiction to lust and pornography that he might be cleansed and freed. It's for the woman who has done shameful things because of her longing to be seen and loved so that her shame might be taken away. It's for the impatient and harsh parent who yells at their son or daughter that they might be forgiven. It's for those children who are a disappointment to their parents because of their poor choices in life. It's for thieves and whores and tax collectors and liars. It's for sinners of every kind. And to us, God says, behold my servant, look at him. Through him and him alone, you can be freed of your past and your future can be bright as the sun because your guilt is taken away. Your shame is taken away. Your sorrows and despair and unworthiness are all taken away and your sin is atoned for. Therefore, I freely and fully accept you as my son or daughter forever. That is what is accomplished in the servant's suffering. He serves as your substitute. And next we see that he's most certainly satisfied with the fruit of his suffering. He is satisfied. In verses 10 through 12, we see the satisfied servant as the servant Jesus looks at God's plan to redeem a damned humanity from eternal judgment. And he weighs what he had to pay to make it a reality. How does he feel? He feels satisfied. First, we see he's satisfied because of his glorious victory and his resurrection. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He shall prolong his days. He shall see his offspring. How can that be said of someone who dies and is buried in a tomb? I thought the servant was going to suffer and die. How can his days be prolonged? Isaiah, seven, eight hundred years before it actually took place, is telling us about the resurrection here. This must be referring to the satisfaction and enjoyment of life after death in spite of his soul being given as a sin offering and his being cut off from the land of the living. 
Ultimately, we see here that the Lord not only decreed that his servant would suffer as a, as a substitute, but that as Paul puts it in Romans 4.25, that he also will be raised for our justification. As a de- definitive declaration that there was no deceit in his mouth and that there was no violence in his hands, the Lord raises him, declaring him innocent, declaring him vindicated, declaring him justified. And therefore, Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is satisfied. Next, we see that he is satisfied because he has secured salvation for his followers. He shall see his offspring, Isaiah says. And we know that the Lord never married, never had any physical posterity, never had any sons or daughters. But that's not what Isaiah is referring to here. He's not referring to a line of physical descendants. Rather, he's referring to the spiritual offspring that will result from his suffering and death. And this should bring to mind for us the story of Abraham going all the way back to Genesis. And we see Abraham is promised that his offspring will be as many as the stars in the heavens. All nations were going to be blessed In Abraham, God told him. Isaiah says, this servant will sprinkle, cleanse many nations. And that he is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to bring about this spiritual offspring that Abraham was promised all those years ago. As Paul tells us in in Galatians 3. Here's what all this means, Christian. I know it's big and a big idea, abstract, but here's what all this means. You were who he was suffering for. When Christ looks upon you, Christian, he's satisfied. You were who he was suffering for. Like it wasn't just some generic kind of love for all of humanity, as if that were even meant anything. It was from a very, it was a very specific and particular atonement that came from a very specific and particular love for you. He was suffering for you. And he wasn't reluctant in doing so. You know, he, he doesn't regret it now. He looks upon you and he says, it was worth it. You were worth it. You were worth the suffering and torture and crucifixion and death. Recognize like the Lord Jesus, he, he doesn't just tolerate you, Okay. Like you have been accounted righteous in his sight so that you could be reconciled to him forever. Like he wanted you and he is satisfied now that you are his. And lastly, he's satisfied because the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He's satisfied because through his suffering, through his death, through his resurrection, the will of the Lord will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because of his saving work, God is creating a new people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. A new people called the church, the new humanity in Christ. And this people is growing and spreading all over the earth. And one day after every people has heard about this suffering servant and after every tongue of people from every tongue have confessed trust in him, he's going to return. And all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and Christ. 
And heaven and earth will become one. Heaven will come down and become one with the earth. And everyone and everything that opposed God and his Christ in the earth will be removed and cast into the lake of fire. And God's new people will reign with him forever and ever. There will be no more sin, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more sickness. Everything will be as it should be, and everything sad will become untrue. And for all of eternity, Christ and his people will be satisfied. We have a very bright future, Christian. That's why the servant came. That's why he suffered. That's why he offered himself as our substitute. He did so because he wanted you. And he did so because he wanted the will of the Lord to prosper in his hand forever. As we conclude, let me say a few final words on how to get in on this free and full salvation. First, I would say be a transgressor. In verse 12, we see that Christ in his substitutionary suffering was numbered with the transgressors. He suffered as a transgressor, though he was innocent, for transgressors. So here's one thing we ought to do in light of that. Be a transgressor. Be a sinner. It might not be a point of application you would expect to hear at church, but don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should blatantly sin and disobey God's commandments. I'm not saying that. Rather, we're to repent of our sin, and meaning that we ought to turn away from our sins. We're to seek to grow in being loving and just people, obedient to Christ's commands. But part of being obedient to Christ's commands means recognizing that we haven't kept his commands. So what I'm telling you is that when I tell you to be a transgressor, is that I want you to give up on your own salvation project. Give up on your own goodness and righteousness to get you in. Don't, don't try to be a hero. There's only one hero in the story. You're not the hero. Christ alone is the hero of the story. We are those sheep who have gone astray, each and every one of us, to our own way. He alone is the spotless lamb of God. We are the transgressors. He is the righteous one. And so the invitation here in the servant song is to bring to the Lord our sins and to bring, bring, him, bring him even the pile of excrement we call our righteousness. Because only, the only way to be counted righteous with the servant's righteousness is to give up on your own, to be a transgressor. Next, I would tell you to look to Jesus Christ. Behold him. Behold. Give up on your own goodness and righteousness and instead look to him. This is what we're told to do. The very first thing we're told to do in the song, the Lord tells us to behold his servant. Behold him. Look at him. As one theologian put it, don't just do something. Sit there. You may be thinking, well, it can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. It just can't be. I can't simply look to him and be saved. But that's just the thing. It wasn't simple. Not for him, it wasn't. It was torturous and horrific for him. It cost him unspeakable and unimaginable pain and suffering, physical and spiritual. But it's all so that God's acceptance could be freely yours at his expense. So now you don't need to do anything to earn it or deserve it. In fact, to try to earn it or deserve it means that you don't actually accept what he did on your behalf. 
So I say again, don't just do something. Sit there, behold him, look at him, look to him and receive his grace with the empty hands of faith. Let's pray.